Welcome and thank you all for joining this episode of the Crexy Podcast, an insider's look at all things commercial real estate. In this show, we cover a broad range of topics that cater to CRE newcomers and industry leaders alike. I'm your host, Ashley Kobovich, Regional Director at Crexy. And today, we're thrilled to sit down with Stephen Proust of Ripco Real Estate. Before we dive in, a little bit about our guest. Stephen R. Proust is Vice Chairman of the Investment Sales Group at Ripco Real Estate, where he focuses on investment sales in the capital markets for the New York metropolitan area. Stephen joined Ripco Real Estate in 2021 as the highest producing investment sale broker in Queens and one of the highest capital market producers in New York City. Stephen's team consists of highly experienced members, including several partners, senior brokers, and entire support staff with the expertise in the New York City and outer borough markets and marketing and analytical professionals. Over his nearly 20-year career, Stephen has produced an ambitious track record with over $5 billion of investment and commercial real estate transactions, while consistently performing over 500 yearly property valuations. Throughout his tenure, Stephen has sold over 500 properties and exclusively handles over 100 listings annually. Stephen is widely recognized as the number one top performer in Queens and Brooklyn and a leading broker in New York City capital markets. He is a major contributor to multiple major publications, including Commercial Observer and The Real Deal, among several other regional and national publications. In addition, he is a regular speaker and panelist on several prestigious panels, including Commercial Observer, Brooklyn, Queens Forum, and BizNow. Stephen is a board member of the Queens Community House, executive board member of Queens Chamber of Commerce, and a main contributor to several other non-for-profit organizations, including the Long Island City Partnership, Greater Flushing Chamber of Commerce, Chinese Business Association, and Chinese American Planning Council. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Uh, pleasure to be here, and uh, I appreciate that very thorough uh, background. <laughs> Awesome. We are so excited to sit down with you. We know we just covered an extensive background, but we'd love to hear a little bit more from you. So love to hear some career path lessons learned along the way. Let's start at the beginning. How did you first get your start in commercial real estate and what drew you to your current focus? Sure. So um, I, uh, when I went to college, I, um, I, I was always uh, had my foot on the gas. I wanted to get it through college and, and started making money as, as quickly mm-hmm. as possible. So um, when I, I finished up my studies, I ran right to Wall Street. Nice. Um, I was able to partner up with, uh, with a senior producer. I uh, spent two years on Wall Street raising capital, uh, learning the ins and outs of, uh, I guess, the first stage of my career um, and the equity markets. Um, in two years, I did pretty well there, and uh, I was able to save up enough where I always wanted to go into business for myself uh, you know, really fulfill my, you know, entrepreneur, uh, need and, and focus. And uh, that's what I did. Uh, so after two years on wall street, I took the capital I made there and I started buying and, and building businesses. Uh, I had a number of different businesses at that point in time, uh, some franchises, uh, some food, and I ran, uh, those, uh, first, uh, tranche of businesses for a few years. Um, I was able to package them up and sell them, um, and I did, 
and uh, I was about 24 at that part in time. So mm-hmm. um, I said, uh, you know, what's next? So I looked yeah. back into that, kind of that first uh, piece of my career. And uh, the most enjoyable part of it was the real estate part, you know, mm-hmm. finding locations, negotiating leases, uh, talking to landlords. Um, I, I think I did pretty well with it the first time around, uh, you know, with the first several that I handled. And I said, listen, I want to go into real estate. Um, and I, at, at that point in time, I was looking into residential and that really wasn't a fit for me. I'm more of a numbers guy. Um, you know, I went to school for finance and, um, you know, I, I really wanted to continue down that path. So commercial real estate seemed like uh, the best fit. Uh, at that point in time, um, CoStar had the top 10, um, you know, real estate companies in New York City. Mm-hmm. Um, I took that list. I met with every single one of them. And uh, at that point in time, there was one that uh, seemed like a real fit to me. Uh, that was Massey Nackle at that point in mm-hmm. time. So uh, that really launched uh, my, uh, my career. And I started with them in 2005. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I love that. I think that was a great overview for our listeners. I love that you said that you wanted to get out of college as quickly as possible, right? So did I. Um, I graduated college in three years at the age of 20. Everyone looked at me like I was crazy, but I was just so um, excited and anxious to get into the workforce and to make as much money as possible, right? That's why we're all in sales. So Talk to me a little bit about where that hunger comes from, right? You talked about a lot of different things, the finance, going into Wall Street, joining Massey Nackle, of course, obviously huge mentors and leaders in this space. So maybe what were some lessons learned um, early on in your career, throughout your family, potentially? Where do you come and, and kind of get that fire, so to speak, to get everything started? What were some early lessons um, that kind of shaped your career path today? Give us a little insight. Sure. So, um, you know, I, I grew up in Levittown uh, in Long Island. Um, I wasn't surrounded by a lot of, you know, in a sense, business, um, you know, very successful people. Uh, my grandfather came over, opened up, um, you know, a, a trucking company. And, you know, my father took that over and now my brother runs it. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a tough business. Uh, they worked hard. Um, and I always wanted to take the next step um, and, and really build something, you know, a little bit larger, uh, you know, really, you know, go towards the financial route. Um, I learned, you know, my business ethics from them. Um, mm-hmm. And I really took that, you know, going forward. Um, and I was able to surround myself, you know, with, um, you know, successful people uh, or ambitious people, you know, from a long time ago. I was... Um, you know, always into sports. I played mm-hmm. uh, baseball and basketball at a high level um, all the way through high school and college. Mm-hmm. Um, so that um, camaraderie and that really sports background uh, and my success in sports really pushed me to continue that mindset as I went into business. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. I, I love hearing about people's why and where the kind of that passion and fire comes from. So early on in your career, who were some of the biggest mentors that you looked up to and kind of learned some invaluable lessons from? Sure. Uh, mentors is a strong word. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I, uh, I guess early on, you know, with Massey and Ackle, there was mm-hmm. a lot of successful people there. And uh, I was able to, um, you know, really learn the business um, properly, you know, through their training mm-hmm. program. Um, I learned just as much what to do as what to, uh, as what not to do, I guess, uh, you know, depending on, you know, who I was, you know, working with on particular transactions. So, mm-hmm. 
Um, I always kept my head down. Um, I took what I can from people as far as learning experiences went. Um, but, you know, I always had, uh, you know, a very structured vision on, you know, what I wanted to do. Um, I was always very focused at the office. Um, so I guess I, I took little tids and bits from, from different people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always had to focus myself as far as to be able to push myself. Absolutely. So one of the things that you touched on is learning what not to do. I love that. I think that seeing other people's mistakes or even the mistakes that I've made have actually propelled me and have been invaluable in as learning lessons in my career. So are there any favorite mistakes that have happened to you personally that maybe you didn't see were an opportunity or just maybe really was a lasting impact on you? Sure. So I worked so hard to achieve every, you know, next threshold of my career. I guess my my biggest mistake or delay was really delegating. Mm-hmm. Um, the first 10 years of my career, I did not hire a team. Um, you know, for people who know me in the industry now, um, you know, I have a, a very large and, uh, and very, um, you know, very strong team. Um, and you know, my first 10 years, I didn't have anybody. I had a couple interns here and there, but I did everything myself. So it was really um, a blessing and a pullback for me where uh, I did learn how to do every part of the business from cataloging uh, to execution, to marketing, you know, to, to you know, touring the, the correct way, um, you know, putting together setups. So everything from the granularities of, of just the everyday blocking and tackling to the, you know, the full range of execution. So um, I think that was a benefit that I've, I've been able to learn every part of the business, but it was probably too much of an elongated process of me doing everything myself, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe if I spent the first three or four or five years doing that and building a team, um, that would have got me to, you know, some of the, uh, you know, next, uh, you know, levels of my career a little bit quicker. So uh, I guess that delegation point, you know, you know, just putting your faith into people, uh, bringing the right people around you took me a little bit longer than it probably should have. Sure. I love that lesson. I think that's huge for anyone in any industry and career, right? We want to have that control and we want to do everything. We think that we do it best, but being able to teach those people around you, hire the right people, then teach it becomes kind of, you know, a couple of you versus just you and you can kind of cover more ground. So I think that's really important for our listeners. So thank you for sharing. Um, Moving into any daily practices that you have that make you so successful, you've done a ton throughout your career. So are there any daily habits, whether that's commercial real estate related or otherwise like meditation or working out that you make sure that you do every day? Sure. Into your calendar. Sure. Sure. Um, I'm a highly structured person. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had the same type of process now for nearly two decades, Uh, obviously rounding out some of those along the way. But Uh, I'm an early riser, um, Mm -hmm. five o'clock every single day. Um, I am religious to my workout in the morning. Um, I wish I had a little bit more time, you know, to extend that workout, but you know, probably 45 minutes every single day, um, get the blood flowing. Um, I get everything planned out for the day, whether Mm -hmm. it's the night before or that morning. Uh, so when I'm walking into the office, let's say, you know, eight to nine o'clock in the morning, um, there's no catching up. Everything yep. is kind of front yep. facing. Um, and I'm very efficient at work. 
Um, I don't eat lunch. Um, I don't, you know, go out and and you know, uh, you know, BS if it's not uh, uh, real estate or, or business related. Mm-hmm. Um, and I try to conquer, you know, 15 hours of work in a 12-hour yeah. day. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people they go to work for for 10 to 12 hours, but they're only executing three, four, five, sure. six hours mm-hmm. of actual real work. So I try to be as efficient as possible uh, during the time, you know, from let's call it eight to eight on a daily basis. I love that. A couple of things there. I think that waking up at the same time every day is so crucial, right? There's so many science-backed studies based on your circadian rhythm and, you know, not just waking up at 5 a.m. during the week, but also on the weekends and making sure that all of that is there. Your workout for your mental health and then for your self-discipline, I think, is huge as well. Planning out your night the day before or the morning of, making sure that you're structured and as efficient as possible. Really, really good stuff. Thanks for sharing that for our listeners. Um, kind of coming into the early days of starting your New York City centric firm. Um, obviously, in 20 years, you've led the transaction of over 700 properties before joining Ripco, which is just so impressive. So, what are the early foundational practices that you put in place to build your team once you started to build that, right? Um, what were some of the essential building blocks that contributed to your success? So, market focused or some of the individual strategies that you just talked about today? Sure. Uh, as far as building the team, I'm aware of my strengths and I know where my weaknesses are. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm a producer. I'm not mm-hmm. the best manager, um, but I'm highly focused. I know how to execute. Um, so I started filling in some of the gaps where I knew that I needed some additional focus. Uh, so administratively, I hired somebody first uh, to really uh, to oversee and run the team. Um, I needed a right-hand person, uh, you know, kind of do the blocking and tackling so I can mm-hmm. do more front-facing and execution work. Uh, so I brought that person in next. Mm-hmm. Uh, we needed some more analytical help uh, next, so I brought in an analyst. Um, and then lastly, we needed somebody more with kind of modeling uh, and more uh, focus on some of the granular nature of the business. And I brought, you know, that person in. Um, I really took those, you know, first several people and, you know, we, we built the foundation of my team. Uh, they're actually all partners of mine at this point in time. Um, they grew up in the business with me and, and mm-hmm. been with me, uh, you know, for between seven and 10 years. So that was the, the basis uh, of the team. Uh, and then we did more of a, um, instead of neighborhood and territories, we did more of focus areas where everyone has their own strength points as far as territory base you know we have some people that are a little bit more focused in queens and then i have some other people that focus in brooklyn and so on and so forth and now with ripco we're expanding into jersey Mm -hmm. and long island so uh, we're taking what we did very well um kind of the first 17 years of my career and now really expanding into different territories uh throughout the tri-state uh with the same kind of focus and execution we've had all along Um, and then i guess lastly is really the asset class so we're Mm -hmm. really asset agnostic as far as uh, our day-to-day um, focus, um, but we do have people that um, you know more handle more of retail, handle more of industrial. Uh, so between the, the territory focuses uh, and the asset agnostic kind of overview, but everyone having uh, kind of more of a focus point of a different asset class that really covers us on all bases. Sure. You said a lot there. And I think first and foremost is just being self-aware and understanding your strengths and weaknesses, right? You know, we try to be a jack of all trades, but, you know, eventually if you want to grow, 
understand where you are really good and then hire potentially where, you know, your weaknesses lie and where you can kind of be a strength as a team. So I love seeing that. And obviously you guys have grown so tremendously. So focused on one area, did the territory focus and then kind of rinse and repeat when you want to expand that model. So that's awesome. Um, how do you create the most value for your clients, right? So being in the industry for a while, I'm sure you have a lot of repeat clients coming back to you. What separates you and the team apart? How do you deliver value and keep these folks coming back time and again? Sure. Um, I think that's a great question. I think what separates myself to most of the brokerage community is that I look at things with my business hat on first instead mm -hmm. of as a broker. Sure. Uh, I like to think of myself as an entrepreneur, uh, you know, business centric. And, you know, if, if you're pushing sale, if you're looking at it just simply through your broker goggles, so to speak, um, that's not always the best way to do it. Um, I think you need to take a step back on every execution and assignment and, and look at it as if you were the owner. Mm -hmm. uh, look at it if, if your property. Look at it uh, as if you were uh, recommending or advising uh, your family. Um, and if you could look at it as a, as a business person or a business owner or a property owner first, um, you can relate, number one, uh, a lot more with uh, the owner or the landlord. Uh, and secondly, you know, you can really structure the right way uh, to execute that business. Um, they'll appreciate it. Mm -hmm. There'll be more of a connection that way. Yep. Uh, you know, typically the process will run a little bit smoother. Um, so if you can put your business hat on first, you know, before you look at it as a broker, it's not always sell, sell, sell. Sometimes you have to solve some problems before you actually, you know, bring it to market. Um, you know, I, I believe that's the best way to, to run a process. I, I think that's so important and can translate into multiple different things, right? Kind of understand who your customer is, who your client is, be prepared to come with that empathy and put yourself in their shoes, right? What would you want to see if you are this business owner? How would you approach that? that? So I always say that to my sales team, right? Imagine you were on the other side of the sales call. How would you want to be treated? What approach would you want to get if you had all of these, you know, pain points or things like that? So uncovering it and truly being that consultant is is huge, I think. So thanks for sharing. Coming in, I know you've done a lot of transactions over the years. So is there a favorite transaction that you can share with our listeners? What made it unique? Why is it your favorite? Give us the details. Well, my favorite transaction is always my next transaction. Um, <laughs> but, I love that. Um, you know, we've had a lot of them. Um, to date, we've closed 782. So it's, it's a lot to choose from. But uh, I think a couple that stand out, you know, more recently, um, I guess in the last two years since I've joined Ripco, uh, we put together uh, the bus terminal in Jamaica transaction where that was a several year process, um, which tends to be my norm, very, very difficult and, and structured and, and long process. But um, it was a three acre site in the middle of downtown Jamaica, uh, one of the largest transit oriented uh, development sites. Um, that has sold in the last several years in the borough of Queens and really the outer boroughs. Um, there was a, a lot of twists and turns. Um, there was, to start off with, I think 47 shareholders uh, of the property on the uh, ownership side. So, you know, that took a lot of a lot of hand-holding, a lot of conference calls, sure. a lot of explanations, which is fine. Um, and then the process itself, um, there was... 
about 70 different tenants. Um, there was the Jamaica bus terminal there, uh, so the New York City bus service. So we had to deal with the Department of Transportation. Mm -hmm. uh, there was environmental issues. Um, there was COVID in between uh, uh, the transaction as well that put a you know an 18 month pause on on the development uh, and the overall sale process. Uh, so you know fast forward. Uh, seven years from start, four years of, of execution and transaction and contract time, uh, we were able to finally close that last year for about $50 million. Uh, and now the new owners are going to redevelop the property into a 650,000 square foot development uh, with commercial, retail, office, residential, uh, and also bringing back the bus terminal to be the first fully electric uh, bus terminal in all of New York City. Wow. Um, so not only was it a, um, a long process, and even though uh, you know I, I probably don't need my shorts, uh, sword sharpened <laughs> too much more, it really uh, put us to the test. Uh, it was a very highly structured uh, transaction, but uh, it's going to be a beautiful development, and um, you know we're very proud of that one. That's awesome. I love giving that overview. That's that's so unique. T took a lot of time, but a lot of different moving parts and being able to see it from start to finish, even with a pandemic in the middle of it is awesome. So hats off to you. Congratulations. Thank you. Uh, second topic. So moving into more of our present day, I'd love to explore your work at Ripco, current projects and thoughts on the industry. So just to provide some context to our listeners who might not know what Ripco is or what it does. I know you talked a little bit about what sets it apart, mm -hmm. but just give us an overview of Ripco and uh, the firm itself. Great. Uh, so Ripco has been around for nearly four decades. Uh, they are retail leasing centric. Mm -hmm. um, they do about a thousand transactions a year, which is uh, spectacular in, in the tri-state and now in Florida uh, on the retail leasing end. Uh, really strong company, and that was really one of the um, the really biggest deciding factors of me joining Ripco. I was at one in one seat for 17 years before I joined Ripco. So uh, when I was making that move, I wanted to make sure that this was going to be the last move, and I really uh, you know, took a lot of time, uh, even though I'm, I'm, a, I'm a pretty, you know, focused and, and, and make my, uh, you know, decisions pretty, uh, pretty quickly. This is something I spent a lot of time on. Uh, but there was one clear choice for, for me at the end uh, to join Ripco uh, just because of their longevity, their success. Uh, the people that are at the company have been there for 10, 20, 30 years. Uh, it's got a real family atmosphere to it. Um, the founders of the company are there every day. You can knock on their, their office and speak to them, which is a, a nice change for me, you know, being at a, a publicly traded company the last several years of my career. Um, and uh, we saw a vision to really collaborate there. Mm -hmm. uh, even though they have done some investment sales in the past, they really never had the machine that uh, I was able to bring uh, to, uh, to Ripco. Uh, so it was really a, a marriage that was uh, ideally put together, um, you know, with my investment sales platform uh, and their retail background, uh, which now they've brought in uh, management division and also a capital markets, uh, debt market division. Um, it really is perfect synergy uh, between what we're doing there right now. And, you know, one thing that really kind of sets them apart, I guess, is, is the relevant synergies. Um, you know, I, yes, you look at a lot of these larger 
publicly traded companies and even though they have every single service line and asset class a lot of them you know uh, are either disconnected or, or don't have the connectivity that that really ripco has so we're, we're talking to the same landlords we're in the same markets um you know just for an example i guess you know we've uh, we've executed um i think about 26 or 27 leasing referrals from my investment sales division over to their leasing army um, and I think I did about four or five of the previous six years. So um, just that alone, it really elevates our business. Mm -hmm. uh, it really gives our clients kind of a, a full circle option uh, to be able to work with us on, on all the relevant parts sure. of uh, their portfolios. Sure. I, I love to hear that. And especially it's really important, I think, first off, your decision to go there, right? You probably had a bunch of different offers, but I love that you were able to go to such an amazing team, a lot of different full service opportunities, and still yet that family style feel, right? As you're growing the team, I think sometimes it's difficult to preserve that culture and make sure that the training is there and everything. So talk us through a little bit as you came on board to build out the investment sales wing, how did you ensure that each new team member embraced that RIPCO culture? How did you train the new brokers, touch on that, expand the business and build, you know, RIPCO to what it is today? Sure. Um, so it was, I don't want to say it was easy, but we had <laughs> some, some built in momentum, right? So it wasn't just me coming over my entire team. Sure. Um, so we had, uh, eight people that all that I've worked with, um, you know, for for many years, uh, I have my four uh, partners um, who have been with me for nearly a decade, uh, we brought together some staff and support. Um, and, you know, we're really looking for the right people uh, as an extension uh, to what we're doing. So um, the way that we're able to handle so much products is that, you know, we have one larger silo. So everyone on the team is a part of every transaction. Nice. Uh, but, you know, the way that we're able to handle uh, 100, 100 uh, exclusive listings or a billion and a half in property at any given time sure. is that we've created sub silos for my four partners. So each mm -hmm. of them have the proper associates and junior brokers under them or next to them. Uh, all under the larger silo. So each right. of them are handling two or three hundred million dollars at a you know of product at a time in the middle markets in the tri-state. Um, so we're able to bring on uh, you know a fair amount of people where they can run their you know individual teams under one larger umbrella. Um, and the I guess the experience or the the ambiance, the atmosphere of us is is one larger team. So it's not like putting. Uh, you know, new entries into the market into a floor of, of juniors, mm -hmm. right? You know, we all sit next to each other. We all have an open concept. We all have an open bullpen. So somebody coming in can sit 10 feet away from me uh, and they can learn more in, in two weeks of just listening, you know, through the transactions as far as how to speak to people, you know, who's the buyer, who's the seller and, and really absorb you know, really two weeks of, of information with us is really like going through two months or two years in some uh, respects of training programs that you have, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in a classroom and not, sure. uh, you know, experience to the whole transactional process. So, you know, we run it as one larger team. You know, we have those sub silos. Everything's done in an open bullpen um, and hands on training, we believe, is the best. And that's how my you know junior partners have learned. And, you know, that's how all the new people come in. Uh, that's how they learn also. 
For sure. I couldn't have said it better myself. I mean, obviously being in sales, we have an open sales floor at Crexy as well. And, you know, obviously with work from home and things like that, I can understand that potentially is here to stay. Right. But it's so invaluable being just so close in the proximity to the people that have been in the industry day in and day out doing these transactions and having your team, whether they just start or whether they're a veteran, being able to sit next to you and hear you on calls, I think is really, really great. Just kind of throwing them in there. So I love to hear that culture and how you guys have preserved that. So that's awesome. Uh, what's next for the investment sales team at Ripco? Uh, we're growing. We're expanding. You know, in this turbulent marketplace, uh, we're on good footing. You know, we had a great first year um, at Ripco Investment Sales and, and uh, I guess the inaugural year of our, our platform. Uh, we closed about $650 million last year, uh, about 70 properties. So we're... You know, we're, um, we're off and running there. And, and what we're doing is we're taking what we've done so successfully in, you know, parts of New York uh, mm-hmm. where we've had 30, 35, 40 percent market share, um, you know, previous to coming to, uh, to Ripco and really taking what's made us so successful and, and simply expanding it into different marketplaces. Sure. Um, and we think it's a great opportunity. Um, in, in these times where, where people, uh, you know, maybe taking a step back, not knowing what to do, you know, maybe changing fields, uh, we look at it as a time where we can grab market share. And I've seen For this sure. before, uh, you know, both in kind of coming out of 2008 and 9 uh, and 10 and 11 uh, and going through COVID. Uh, if you keep what you're doing, you keep your work ethic, you keep your blocking and tackling going, um, you bring in the right people. And, and that's also... Um, I think a benefit right now, I've, I've seen more movement in the industry, uh, both with some of the, the younger people in the industry, mm-hmm. as well as some of the more senior people in the industry, uh, in the last six months. And I've seen the last six years, mm-hmm. um, I get calls daily as far as people looking for guidance or, um, just asking if there's opportunities. Um, so it's a great time to grab market share. It's yep. a great time to bring on talent mm-hmm. and, uh, we're expanding it now through Jersey, through Long Island, through Connecticut, uh, Manhattan, Upper Manhattan, Queens, and Brooklyn. So um, it's exciting for us, and and we're embracing the times, and we think it's going to be a real benefit for us long term. Absolutely. Well, any of our listeners, if you guys are looking to get into commercial real estate, now is the time, right? You guys are hiring. I've heard this time and time again, where people are a little bit scared to get into the industry or they're pivoting in or out of it, you know, because of the current market. And we'll talk about this in a minute, but you know, the time is now people are hiring. This is when to take market share. So if anyone wants to reach out to Steven, we'll give, we'll give your information afterwards, but you know, definitely now is the time. I love to hear that. So transitioning into, you know, more of the market, as I was just alluding to, going into the nuts and bolts of today's commercial real estate landscape, we'd love to ask some questions on what your thoughts are. So give us a 30,000 foot overview, current market happenings, what shifts are most worthy of people's attention, and what is just fluff? Sure. So obviously there's headwinds. I mean, Mm -hmm. you're hearing it every day, you're reading it every day in a lot of the trades. Um, so, you know, let's start with the obvious, which is interest rates. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's, it's very tough to make a lot of these, um, you know, potential opportunities and deals work when, you know, rates are anywhere from seven to 14%, depending sure. if it's conventional or secondary. So, um, that is, is really, um, a speed bump that, you know, we're not going to get over. We're going to have to find our way around mm-hmm. and through, 
Um, so, you know, I don't think there's going to be much uh, relief in that respect, you know, probably for another year or so. Mm-hmm. We have to go through a lot of workouts, a lot of turbulence, uh, a lot of short sales, foreclosures, you know, before we'll get, um, you know, uh, a footing as far as uh, either a comfortability on where those interest rates stand or uh, hopefully some relief. Um, you know, with those with those rates coming down in about a year or so. Mm-hmm. Um, so that being said, there are transactions happening. Obviously, transaction volume is, is way down, um, but it's really um, segmented into different buckets as far as I see it. So I'm a middle markets broker. I mm-hmm. deal with properties anywhere from a million to 100 million, even though we have some properties up to 250 million. Um, but I deal in that middle market, um, you know, area. And, you know, what we're seeing is kind of the evolution of um, the uh, larger institutions really working their way out of the market. So um, institutional companies, you know, larger equity groups uh, who have really penetrated the market uh, over the last several years, especially into territories that they weren't in before, like the outer boroughs and, and Long Island and more suburban markets. Um, they are pretty much completely removed uh, from the marketplace right now. Um, so what does that do? Um, that brings kind of the larger price point, you know, out of play because they were the ones pushing, you know, 30, 50, 70 million dollar transactions where more of the family offices and the generational buyers, uh, you know, would, and I'll use an equities term, uh, would really move the, the small and mid cap properties. So the under 10 million, the under 25 million. Um, so this dynamic, uh, along with interest rates and, and people mitigating risk where, you know, maybe they were buying 20 or $30 million properties, but because of the market now, they'd rather buy four or five, five million dollar properties. Sure. So, um, you know, we ran a study and we, we saw that, you know, these dynamics, at least that's, that's my hypothesis, um, that 96% of everything that's sold in New York City this year so far has been under 10 million. And when mm-hmm. you think about that, that's, mm-hmm. it's a spectacular figure. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really where the market is playing. Um, you know, last year we had several $50 million and up transactions, and, and this year we'll only have a couple. But that under 10 million uh, is very frothy. If you have anything under 10 million that's priced right, the types of buyers in today's marketplace are more of the buyers I dealt with the first 15 years of my career. Mm-hmm. Um, the you know local mom and pop, uh, the family office, really the generational buyer. Because mm-hmm. you can't really buy anything in the market right now and look at a three or five or seven year horizon because sure. there's, there's just not any clarity. It's mm-hmm. too cloudy out there right now as far as forecasting goes. So for the, for the families, the family offices, um, the generational buyers that are looking at, you know, holding it forever, you mm-hmm. know, letting their kids deal with it, you know, mm-hmm. in, in 20 years from now, it's really a good environment for them. You know, they're okay. cash flowing. They have the local banking relationships, albeit a little bit more expensive, but with the regional banks, um, those are the groups that are now pushing the envelope and are buying, you know, they're, they're buying product that's 15% less than what they would have bought a couple of years ago. And they're competing against, you know, two or three people instead of mm-hmm. 20 or 30 people right. that are syndicating. Right. Um, so I think that's going to continue to push the market. And I think one really uh, strong evidence of that is in 2022, it was the first time that private capital outpaced institutional capital, um, and which is, I think, just starting. And I think that's mm-hmm. going to be even more of an imbalance the next year or two. 
Sure. And thanks for that overview and insight. I appreciate you sharing that. And I'm sure so do our listeners. You gave us a lot of a little bit of an insight into what some of your predictions are moving forward, especially with the private capital money. What are maybe some surprising or controversial thoughts you have about the current market or moving forward, if any, that you'd like to share with us? Sure. Um, I think, you know, retail has um, is going to be a market mover, especially neighborhood retail. Retail, mm-hmm. you know, went through a lot of turbulence and still is being kind of remade into, you know, the new age retail. But um, overall, I think a lot of these areas are under retailed. Mm-hmm. Um, I think retail is changing from big box to more experiential. Um, and I think that we're right in the midst of kind of a retail revolution. Um, and it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. Mm. So I think retail, um, is going to drive a lot of, you know, the percentage of, of activity over the next few years. Um, you know, I, I think, and I'm, you know, a lot of my business is development. I would say probably mm-hmm. half of my business is development. Um, I think that it's a good time right now for to buy land. Um, obviously, people can't buy land and, and build uh, rentals right now for residential because of the lack of the 421A or tax abatements. But I think overall, um, if you have patient capital uh, and if you get some covered land where you're buying the land and you're able to kind of rent it out or park cars on it or just create a little bit of a, a cap rate return, um, I think that if you can buy residential driven development land and you can get it for 30, 40, 50% less than what you were paying a few years ago and you have patient capital, you know, I think that's really, um, you know, somewhere where a lot of people are going to make a lot of money and smart decisions, taking some calculated risk going against the grain. Uh, so I think that retail avenue and, you know, patient capital on, on residential development sites, um, you know, albeit, I guess, controversial to, to uh, use your words, is, is probably going to pay <laughs> off to be a very good investment for some people. Sure. I appreciate you sharing that with us. Now, let's dive a little bit deeper into that. So specifically looking at New York, which obviously was hit hard by the pandemic, what activity do you see happening in different asset classes? So I know we were just kind of talking about your predictions potentially for retail, potentially land. Um what are the different asset classes, industrial, retail, office? What are currently your uh, predictions for New York or what's happening now? So dive, dive a little bit into that for our listeners here. Sure. Yeah. So we, we touched on the retail and the land development. Mm-hmm. Uh, industrial has been a hot sector. Uh, we've sold uh, a heck of a lot of it in, mm-hmm. in the outer boroughs the last several yep. years. Um, that's going through a resetting as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a lot of this... Uh, you know, industrial, whether it's developments or in-place bricks, um, I mean, pricing was just incredible uh, a couple of years ago. And I think that's resetting because there may not be as many tenants in the marketplace uh, as people thought. Um, and that's what happens when you have a hot industry, you have capital, you know, going after it. And if capital is going into those syndicators, they're going to spend that money on, on, that, on that asset class. So I think industrial long term, obviously, is is going to be a very smart choice of investment. But I think people have to be careful about if they could really backfill with with tenants, uh, especially the multi-level industrial, which um, in my mind is, is going to be very difficult long term. That's still not a proven uh, business concept. Um, so I think one story industrial, you know, last mile logistics um, is, is going to, is here to stay. Um, you know, there's, there's a lack of it. I think we lost about 15 million, uh, square feet, uh, of industrial or M zone property in the last two cycles, uh, that was rezoned into residential. 
Um, so there is a lack of it. Um, so you just got to be careful on, on the price point um, and just be real careful about, um, um, you know, kind of building something on spec without a handle on, on the local marketplace as far as what the, how many tenants there are and what they're paying. Mm-hmm. Um, office, you know, I, I don't I don't know. <laughs> I mean, that's uh, that's the uh, the magic uh, question right now. Yeah. on um, if it's going to come ball. back, um, I know, you know, my office, we're in the office mm-hmm. five, six days a week and we're yep. full, but, um, that's not the way that everyone looks at it. That's, sure. that's not the marketplace anymore. Right. Um, if we can find a way on, you know, tax incentives, um, and ways to, uh, you know, kind of repermutate those, uh, office buildings into different asset classes that make sense, like residential. Um, I think that's probably going to end up to be the answer or a solution, I guess, you know, for those office buildings, but uh, we're yet to see it. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Um, I would love everyone to go back to the office and sales. You know, it, it definitely is helpful, but, you know, it, it's it's an interesting time right now and very hard to predict. Um, when we're looking specifically at New York City, so I love New York. It's New York or nowhere for me. But what distinguishes New York from other cities and what can other markets learn from its recovery? Uh, our resiliency. Um mm-hmm. You know, our commitment to New York City, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've had a, a large outflow of capital, um, you know, to different markets, uh, you know, that are probably better taxed and, you know, maybe a little bit easier way of life like Florida, the Carolinas or, or Texas, uh, what have you. But um, I believe in New York City long term, um, I think this is um, going to be kind of a, I don't want to say a short term, but um, I think we have to go through some growing pains, um, and a, a lot of that is going to have to start in Albany, um, mm-hmm. and our political nature of New York City right now uh, really needs to have a, a come-to-Jesus moment. Um, and sometimes you have to go through pain, and you have to go through suffering, um, and I think that's what we're doing right now. Um, mm-hmm. But I believe in New York City. I believe in the commerce here. I believe in the people like us that yeah. it's New York City or nowhere. And, and there's more of those types of people than anybody realizes. Um, but I think the next couple of years, we're going to have to take a couple on the chin. Um, hopefully we learn from, you know, those those punches that we take and we'll come out of it in, in a better um, a better position financially, a better pi- position in Albany, hopefully. Um, and, uh, you know, some people in politics that really get it long term. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I couldn't have said it better myself. You know, a couple of things, you know, just take the punches and keep on going. And the only way out is through and, <laughs> so, learn, from it. Yeah. and learn from it. Right. Exactly. Um, so I know we talked a little bit about the current uh, macroeconomic factors, right? Inflation, rising interest rates, higher insurance costs. How are some of the assets that you cover being affected by these current conditions? I, they're all being affected by mm-hmm. by these conditions, some more than others. Um, you know, we have to go through a resetting of pricing. Um, we went through a time of, you know, very low cap rates, three and four caps in, to, to, to in some cases, uh, very frothy underwriting, you know, bank lending that was loose around the edges, um, a lot of cash out, you know, refinances. Um, and, you know, we have to reset those values before we can really uh, move forward uh, on equal ground. And, and you know, kind of goes back to a couple of things we've discussed where the next couple of years mm-hmm. you're going to have to take some punches and go through some hurt. Uh, so the next, you know, year or two, there's going to be a lot of 
know, distress is a very general word, but distress uh, type of circumstances, uh, whether it's workouts, whether it's short sales, whether it's foreclosures, whether it's cash in refinances, um, you know, banks, I hear more and more on a weekly basis that are putting a pause on lending, um, you know, for uh, the next couple of months or until the end of the year. And this is this is a necessity. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the underwriting has to get tighter. Uh, we have to come back down to reality. Um, you know, a lot of people are going to have to put money back in on their refinances that are coming up in the next couple of years. We're going to have mm-hmm. to reset new comps, you know, through some of these distressed transactions. Um, and I think that, you know, overall, um, you know, we'll, we'll get back to that. It's just a matter of how long that's going to take, you know, whether it's six months or a year, year and a half. Mm-hmm. And then once we have that resetting of values and, and the way that we underwrite these properties, um, that in tune with ho- hopefully a softening of the interest rates, um, and hopefully it's, it's as close to business as usual as, as we can uh, hope for. Um, you know, I think that's a 2025 type of thing. Uh, but again, there's going to be a lot of opportunities the next couple of years for people who uh, have access to cash and uh, who, who believe in New York City long term. Absolutely. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better. I know, I know we were kind of talking a little bit. You're talking about 2025, 2024, et cetera. What are maybe some of your long-term and short-term predictions? And I, get, I know you don't have a crystal ball, but you know, what does that look like? And then how are you advising some of your clients if you have a specific story you want to share on just making it through the current economic times and then into you know 2024 and beyond? Sure. So I mean, we're advising a lot of our, I guess, stable clients, uh, you know, probably to hold off, you know, depending on what they have. Um, and again, it, it, it depends what their timeline is. Mm-hmm. If they're, you know, New York City 10, 20 years from now, um, you know, maybe it's best to kind of reset your property, um, add more value to your property, mm-hmm. again, through our leasing arm. You know, maybe uh, you, you lease up a few tenants, you turn the tenancy, you get some more, you know, credit worthy tenants in there. Um, and look long term, you know, as far as those who, who want to sell uh, or maybe have a more compressed timeline and, and you know, want to you know, see themselves in, in Delray Beach or, or Florida <laughs> in, in two years. Um, I, I think that, you know, selling now is probably the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the latter part of 2024, um, you know, maybe all of 2024 is going to be a little bit choppier. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they have a shorter time horizon, uh, I would say now is a better time to market than, than probably next year. Uh, so it really depends on, on their time horizon. Uh, we're not afraid to people, uh, afraid to tell people to, to hold off. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're, we're relationship driven, not transaction sure. driven. Uh, so it really depends on their timeline. And then typically we can guide them in the right direction from there. Absolutely. And I, I think it's it's really a case by case basis, which is why working with, you know, firms such as yours or yourself, right, specifically is so important because just having that value that you add to your clients and having really that advisory perspective comes in key. Now, for some of our listeners out there that are in this space, any general advice for them, either from the buy side or the sell side? I know it's a lot. <laughs> Um, I think having the right team around you, you know, mm-hmm. having the right advisement team, you know, having the right broker ra- around you, um, uh, having the right accountant around you, having the right attorney around you, you know, now is unprecedented, right? right. Um, so I guess there's some, you know, shoots that you can see that, you know, you can link back to some of the other ups and downs in the marketplace. Uh, but it's unprecedented for the most part. Um, mm-hmm. So, 
you know, what we're seeing is a lot of people going to their most trusted uh, advisors, you know, in, in good times when, you know, things are, are uh, functioning in all cylinders, you know, maybe they'll have three or four attorneys or a couple of different accountants, five brokers mm-hmm. that they deal with, uh, because it's a little bit easier to transact. Sure. Um, you know, you don't need the, the experience or the advice um, as much as you do now. So what we're seeing right now is that people are going back to their most trusted. Yeah. You know, maybe spending a couple extra dollars on the, on the right attorney, <laughs> uh, on the right CPA or accountant, going back mm-hmm. to the one or two brokers that, you know, have been in the business for 20 years as opposed to, you know, maybe the, the new person coming mm-hmm. into the marketplace or maybe someone who hasn't seen a downturn. Right. Um, so, you know, get the right team around you, um, get all of the information that you can make an informed decision. Mm-hmm. And then uh, typically you can execute the right way. Absolutely. The team that you surround yourself with is so, so important. Knowledge is power, right? But just making sure that you're surrounded by the right people. So if anyone is looking for a team out there, please call Steven and Rico and all of them. They're fantastic. Um, So moving into some rapid fire questions, given your background and expertise, I'm sure our our listeners would love to hear a couple of questions that we have for you. So first and foremost, if you were given $50 million today and you had to invest it, where would be your location? What go-to asset type and why? Easy. Um, I would go towards what I, what I referenced before, which is residential development land. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not to develop now, but I would take advantage of the compressed pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, I would buy in secondary and tertiary areas. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, maybe not, you know, Park Avenue or Madison Avenue, <laughs> but maybe in, uh, you know, some of the, you know, areas that maybe haven't uh, switched over into an emerging area just yet in, in Brooklyn or Queens, mm-hmm. uh, some parts of Long Island and northern New Jersey uh, that really haven't, you know, maybe caught their stride yet. So uh, residential uh, driven land, you know, I would if there's a building on it, I'd probably knock it down and bring down my tax base and, and try mm-hmm. to rent out, uh, you know, for the next three or five years. Um, you know, hopefully by then, you know, we'll have some, uh, tax incentive situations for us. The market is better. Interest rates are down and, you know, maybe you can, uh, achieve 30, 50, hundred percent on that investment. So residential developable land. Yep. Perfect. I love that. Second question. And I promise Stephen, this is not a trick question. <laughs> what is your favorite tool or software used on the job? Well, I mean, it's, it's got to be Crexy, right? <laughs> he got it right. Uh, <laughs> but I, I'm going to go with a more um, <laughs> archaic answer, uh, the phone. Yes. Uh, so I built my business on the phone. Yep. Um, I love being on the phone all day. Uh, that's, that's how I'm built. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in, in a world where it's tough to get FaceTime with people because yep. everyone's doing, you know, Zooms and things of that nature. Uh, the phone is, is my best weapon. Sure. Um, you know, I like to tell, you know, the, the guys and girls that work for me, you know, that who, you know, kind of fall back on their emails, mm-hmm. making one phone calls, like sending 30 or 40 emails. So get on the phone, uh, have some connection with people, uh, and, and, and dial that phone 50 to hundred times today. And, and you will have good things happen. I absolutely agree. Cold calls are not dead. Everyone, you've heard it here first. That absolutely going and making that phone call just shows up so much better. A lot of people can hide behind the computer and hide behind the email. And, you know, sometimes that's definitely effective, not ruling that out. But picking up the phone and contacting someone, hearing their voice, having that conversation, or better yet, meeting them in person for a coffee or a cocktail or something like that just goes so far, especially in this industry. So I love hearing that. It's not archaic to me. (laughs) 
<laughs> and last but not least, what is the most common misconception about your job or industry? That it's easy. Uh, I believe we have a 97% fail rate sure. uh, within the first three years. Yep. Uh, and then I believe uh, within the next two years after, uh, we have like a 99% fail rate yep. as far as people living the industry. So it's not easy. It's mm -hmm. a grind. There's no shortcuts. Right. Uh, you can't do everything on, on social media. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to go in, you have to meet people, you have yep. to, you have to grind, you have to build a business, uh, expect not to get paid for a year or two. Sure. Um, you can't do it all on your own the days mm -hmm. of kind of sole proprietors and just going out there and doing it yourself. Um, you know, those days are behind us. Uh, so you got to join the right team, um, among a couple other things, but, uh, it's a grind and, um, there's a reason why you see the same faces in the industry over the past 20 years, because, you know, it, it's a lot of, a lot of hurdles, daily hurdles. Uh, it's mentally challenging. And a lot of the people that you see uh, in this industry today, uh, they have a special gift of, of, of being able to handle an extraordinary amount of aggravation. So uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not easy. So I think that's a misconception. For sure. Absolutely. Success. It really takes hard work. There's the big iceberg underneath where people just see the upward trajectory of success and sometimes fail to see that hard work. So I think it is that grind and important. Most people quit before they actually see it. Right. So making sure that you're putting in that work and that time every single day using the discipline and things like you use every single day to get to where you are. So thank you so much for sitting down with us today. I know you are so busy, so we genuinely appreciate taking the time to chat with us. If our listeners want to know more, they want to join your team, how can they get in touch with you? Sure. Uh, they can email me at srp at ripconewyork.com or ripcony.com rather. Uh, and uh, my handle is at ripcoinvestmentsales. Amazing. And then before we let you go, any other parting words, anything else that you want to share with our audience here today? Uh, we covered so much and uh, <laughs> I, I enjoyed our conversation. You did a great job. Uh, I appreciate Crexy and, um, you know, go New York. Yes, I love it. I love it. Thank you again, Stephen, so much for sitting down with us. And thank you all for joining us for everyone who tuned in today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure not to miss the next one. Visit go.crexy.com slash podcast and sign up to get the next episode delivered straight to your inbox. Of course, you can also subscribe to the Crexy podcast on your favorite podcast app and check out our YouTube channel for video recordings of each episode. Take care and be sure to tune in next time. 